Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in the great state of New York flying solo as Lauren in Swansea, UK is preparing for the shutdown of her city as a result of the crisis. But Lauren does want me to express her best wishes on everyone and both Lauren and I encourage everyone to stay home, stay safe, try to stay happy, and we're going to bring as much content as we can over the next several weeks to help keep you entertained in our own small way. Tonight we're going to be featuring an interview I was able to do with writer and historian John Thorne. John Thorne is the author of multiple books, including Total Baseball, the official encyclopedia of Major League Baseball, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, The Secret History of the Early Game, Treasures of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's also a columnist for Voices, which is the publication for the New York Folklore Society, and the founder of Total Sports Publishing. In 1994, John served as the senior creative consultant for Ken Burns' epic documentary, Baseball. Since 2011, John has been the official historian for both Major League Baseball and the Baseball Hall of Fame, and he was gracious enough to join me to discuss one of my favorite all-time topics, the 1919 Black Sox scandal, the story of the Throne World Series between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. And now sit back and I hope you enjoy my interview with... John Thorne. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. John Thorne. Thank you so much for being a being a guest on Transatlantic History Ramblings. Hey, Brian. Glad to be with you. Um, uh, obviously, I want to state right from the get-go that I'm a big fan. I've read all of your books. I've seen you in you know multiple documentaries. I uh, I think everybody in the world who's ever seen it is a big fan of the the phenomenal Ken Burns documentary baseball that you were, you know, such a big consultant on. You know everything there is to know about, about the great sport of baseball, but... I know everything except what I don't know. Exactly. Well, I thought we could just uh, pick one topic to go into for this one, and that would be, uh, to me, one of the most fascinating times in the history of the sport, and that's the... Uh, the infamous 1919 World Series between the the Red uh, the White Sox and the Reds, where the Chicago White Sox allegedly conspired to throw the World Series. Well, I would say that the use of allegedly is uh, perhaps a little prissy for my taste. There's uh, there's no doubt that the series was thrown. There is little doubt that prior series were thrown, or at least were attempted to be thrown. Gambling was rife in America. And the Chicago White Sox of 1919, the eight men act, they have taken as their direct precedent their crosstown rivals, the Chicago Cubs, who lost the previous year's World Series in six games to the Boston Red Sox. And rumors were everywhere that the series had been tossed. Yeah, and, and there were there were rumors that um, some of the biggest names in the game were being implicated in gambling scandals. Uh, Tris Speaker and Ty Cobb were named. They were. Um, as I've seen several reports that one of the main reasons the White Sox scandal actually emerged was when people were trying to defend the Tris Speaker Ty Cobb accusations. Um, no, I think you've got your chronology off there. I mean, the, the, the Speaker Wood Cobb uh, incident in which uh, players conspired to lose certain games in order to achieve uh, 
not until 1926. So it has, it has no real relation to the Black Sox scandal, except perhaps to uh, give evidence that there was a casual climate of game-fixing. Just never to this level. I mean, well, obviously, you said it could have been to this level with the, the, the Cubs series. Yes, and there was an attempt for sure to throw the very... Lou Krieger, who was Cy Young's catcher for the uh, Red Sox, who were not known as the Red Sox just yet, the Boston Americans, um, came forward to say that he had been approached by gamblers to lose certain games, and um, because he came forward to the officials, who were very grateful, and Boston wound up winning that World Series in a tremendous upset over Pittsburgh, Krieger, when he retired, was given a pension by the American League, and this was long before anybody got a pension. So, yeah, it was it was well known uh, by people inside the game that this was going on. So, so what do you think it is that made the the nineteen series such a standout? Uh, and was that, it at the time? A, that, that's an excellent question because while it was well known within baseball, gamblers had their way with certain players, or gamblers tried to impact certain regular season games, and even perhaps the 1914 World Series, in addition to the 1918 and the 1917, the general public was unaware. So when the news of the Black Sox scandal broke, which was not immediately after the World Series concluded, but rather almost a full season beyond, in late September of 1920, this came as a tremendous shock to the public. That and the, just the amount of colorful characters involved in it had to be such huge news uh, all over the country. You had some star players uh, on the White Sox. Joe Jackson, notably, Ed Seacott, and Buck Weaver. Eddie Collins was a great star, but he was not one of the uh, so-called dirty players. But the the legend that I'm associated with the White Sox is that they're one of the greatest teams in baseball history, yet tossed the World Series to the lowly Cincinnati Reds, champions of the National League. It's not so. The White Sox were a good but not great team, dependent overwhelmingly on their starting pitching. Yet one of their starters, Red Faber, became ill and was unavailable. So the team that went out there for Game 1 of the 1919 series, the White Sox were actually the betting underdog because word had gotten out to the smart set that the fix was in. Yeah, I always thought that was something that was so unfair because, you know, I'm a baseball nut and a bit of a baseball historian myself. And just knowing that the fact that, you know, Ed Rausch and Heine Grow, you know, there were some great players on that Cincinnati team. A good, solid team, not spectacular. Uh, Jake Daubert at first base was a formidable player. Rausch, of course, was a star. Um there wasn't a whole lot to choose between the White Sox and the Reds, I think, in terms of who was going to win that World Series. The Reds had never been in the World Series before, and this was 50 years since their famous 1869 Red Stockings in, uh, traveled across the country taking on all comers and going undefeated. But there was very little glory in Cincinnati in all the years since. So 1919 marked a... Um, 
a nice anniversary for the Reds. The White Sox had been in the World Series only two years before, and uh, but they also had had a um, a little bit of World Series history in 1906 when their hitless wonders, um, who batted 230 for the season and I believe had only three home runs, three or six the entire year, uh, defeated one of the great teams of all time, the 116-game winner Chicago Cubs. Probably the greatest upset in World Series history. It's that or 1914 or 1969. Yeah, and, and going back, in 17, uh, the White Sox did beat the Giants, and that was uh, when it was still a seven-game series, which, interestingly enough, the 1919 series was not a best-of-seven like most World Series. That's a good point, because the best-of-nine format obtained for the 1900, a revival of a World Series that had occurred in the 19th century and was and was played to an indeterminate number of games. I think the 1887 World Series was a best of 15 with many different touring sites. So the best of nine was restored for 1919 because the armistice had been declared. Uh, there was a new appetite for baseball, even though the season had been shorter, 140 in 1919. The assumption was that a nine-game series would be a good thing for the public. Uh, I, I, I would point out that 1918 was also a year of a shortened regular season of only about 130 games. And, of course, one of the things that really put the scandal in the history books was was the book Eight Men Out. That uh, is a phenomenal book. Yeah. It wrote a terrific book, a tremendous read, but its factual accuracy has been attacked almost ever since its publication. And in the years since Elliot died, uh, Society for American Baseball Research um, historians have dug in, but found that Elliot had created some fictional elements in order to advance his story, going so far as to create a gambler named Harry F., a strong-arm guy, who he said, who Elliot wrote, threatened Lefty Williams and his family uh, with death if he didn't toss the game and, and give evidence of tossing the game eight with the White Sox uh, on the rocks. Um, Harry F., it turns out, never existed. No, and, and it's too bad, too, because so much of that book is is phenomenal um granted you know you can argue that some of the links with rothstein were speculation but you know some of it has panned out over the years but what i found fascinating about the book was you know he really paints over buck weaver as almost like this this victim it suited elliot to have an innocent victim. Um, just as uh, Nelson Algren and James T. Farrell, both Chicago-based writers and socially conscious left-of-center guys, uh, chose to render the an oppressed labor versus wealthy management, thus falsifying the conditions of both the Black Sox 
and Charlie Comiskey and ownership in general. Um, I am no uh, conservative or even a Republican uh, politically, but I do think that the attempt to plug some of the Black Sox characters into uh, prototypes is false to the story. And rather than the Black Sox being innocent victims, uh, they were the originators of the scheme. It wasn't that the gamblers came to the White Sox and said, say, why don't we concoct a plan? It was Chick Gandel, the first baseman of the White Sox, who was responsible for initiating the plan and approaching gamblers. Yeah, and he's the one that uh, that, that kind of left right after the season, too. Like you said, it went on, you know, they played almost the full 1920 season. Correct. They were in the pennant race in mid-September, absolutely. But without Chick Gandel. Yes, I think, uh, you know, Gandel had not only outlived his usefulness, he had been in the majors for a decade, first with Washington, then with Chicago, and was never a first-rate player. Um because he may have pocketed the preponderance of the funds that were allocated for his teammates, um, it suited him to stay in California and play outlaw ball. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one of the things I always thought was that uh, some of the guys didn't get the money they were promised and they knew Gandal had it, so might be better to stay well, away. They suspected Gandal had it, but no one was ever sure. Um, Gandal and Risberg, these were, they were threatening types, and they uh, tossed ball games uh, in the West as well, just as Hal Chase, the uh, greatest crook of the 1910s, was finally banned from baseball and went out to uh, the West Coast and played outlaw ball and continued to throw games there. Um, the inclination to make more money than your salary if you could do it skillfully, was hard to resist. And that brings me to the point that, you know, one of the legends is the players were so willing to throw this series uh, because of the way they were treated by, by Charles Comiskey and the, at the rate they were paid by Comiskey. Yeah, this is an Elliot Azenoff uh, contribution, which is, which is false in... Among American League clubs, the White Sox were the highest paid. And of the 20 top pay, of the 16 top American League salaries in 1919, five belonged to members of the Chicago White Sox. So this idea that they were called the Black Sox because they, was the Comiskey wouldn't pay to have their jerseys cleaned. Uh, or they were called, uh, they, they were somehow deprived of their salaries and deprived of promised bonuses. This is all hogwash. And Elliot has to take some blame for this. Yeah, I mean, Kaminsky was always known for being a player's boss. I mean, back, you know, being the... Any, o- any owner was going to be a pinch penny because uh, in, in that period... If you owned a ball club, it tended to be your principal business. It's not like today where uh, most teams are owned by uh, corporate conglomerates. This is not Connie Mack um, selling off his stars periodically in order to keep the franchise afloat. These were um, 
businesses that did not generate a lot of profit. And many of them were on the edge and indebted to other owners as well as to the banks. Yeah, and Comiskey being a, a player who, you know, was significant in changing the way the game was even played, I always thought had a little more sympathy for the players than most owners did. So it was he always, may have, but certainly yeah. he rewarded them well. Uh, there really can be no question about that. Yeah, it was always unfair, I thought, that he got such a such a bad reputation for that. Well, you ha- if you're going to have angels, then you have to have devils. So if you're, if you're going to take the position that the uh, players have to be seen as put-upon serfs, vassals, um, of a medieval lord, then uh, you have to have a lord. And Comiskey was made out to be J.P. Morgan, and he wasn't. No. And like to talk about just a few of the individual players as well like we already mentioned uh, Buck Weaver but you know famously uh, Eddie Seacott gets a lion's share of the blame for the throwing of the series well he got his 10,000 bucks yeah. the money was under the pillow at the hotel before game one he insisted upon being paid up front or he wouldn't we would not conspire and when asked why he took the money, he said, I did it for the wife and kitties, meaning that he needed to pay off the mortgage on his farm. He needed to uh, establish his family for the years when he could no longer play ball. He was already on in years in his mid-30s. So if you're going to have sympathy for Seacott's um, position, then you have to completely ignore the morality of undercutting your teammates and playing to lose. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I said, Seacott was, like you just said, already approaching the tail end of his career. He he wasn't, I mean, he had a great couple of years, but he wasn't the star pitcher he was when he was younger. Well, he was still pretty darn good. I mean, he had won what, 28 games one year and 29 another, and this was in very recent memory. I think he won 20, 28 in 1917 and 29 in 1919 or vice versa. So he was at the top of his game, and because his principal pitch was a knuckler that did not place great strain on his arm, he could have he could have gone on for a, for a long while. And then the other pitcher uh, implicated Lefty Williams. There's no indication of what Williams might have been. He was young and had had some success, but when you asked who was the best lefty in the American League, the answer was always Bay. Yeah, I was going to say there was a little, there was a big guy named Ruth that might have been better. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, that these guys saw an opportunity and took it, no. despite the chance that they're, you know, they would be found out and expelled from baseball, but there have been previous expulsions. It's not that the Black Sox scandal was the first or that the Black Sox players were the first to be caught. We'd had a tremendous scandal in 1877 with four Louisville players who conspired to toss the pennant to Boston by losing a whole series of games in late August and early September that drove the Louisville Grays out of the pennant race, and the four were expelled for life. We'd had a previous scandal in the amateur era in 1865 with players who were banned for life, yet all three of them 
who had played for the Brooklyn Eckfords, I believe, uh, had their sentences commuted and returned to play. Devery and uh, Tracy and uh, I'm forgetting the third. Now, the third pitcher, and he was not implicated or even called out on this, uh, was uh, Dickie Kerr, who, if I'm not well, mistaken... Kerr, Kerr, Kerr was not one of the Black Sox. No, but he, he was... But he, not involved in the plot. He he did he did eventually get uh, banned from baseball in subsequent years, did he not? Not related to the Black Sox scandal directly. Correct, correct. He he. Um, many ball players, particularly those who made their homes in the South, um, added to their income by playing ball for barnstorming clubs, and if you played ball again and a lot of the Black Sox continued to play ball in this way, then um, you were liable to suspension, and Landis suspended Kerr. So back to the actual eight men out. We've, dus- we've discussed the two pitchers. We've discussed Chick Gandel. Um, then we have the shortstop, Swede Risberg. Uh, Risberg was an unreliable fielder and the question was was he was he kicking balls because he was inept or was he kicking them because he was enthralled to the gamblers uh, nobody regarded Risberg as a great player and uh, those who would prefer uh, Risberg to cough of his opposite number with the Cincinnati Reds at shortstop um, they tend to be modern um, observers who have some strange sympathy for the eight men who were banned. Um, I've never really understood the sympathy for Weaver in particular, who was a terrific third baseman, had become a great player in his later years, um, because Weaver not only sat in on these conversations and even though he took no money, he says, and played to win, he says, there is substantial evidence that Weaver was in on throwing games throughout the 1920 season. So the idea that Weaver will be made to be the mistreated angel by Nelson Algren in particular, as well as uh, Asanoff, uh, is strange. Every single member of Every one of the eight, though acquitted in court for technical reasons and for reasons of jury nullification, was subject to discipline by the newly installed Commissioner Landis, who did baseball a great service, in my estimation, by unequivocally banning all eight. And, yep, that was uh, George Weaver was the next one I was going to go on to, but now we'll go to the outfield. We'll, We'll start with Fred McMillan, who is, to me, the odd man out of the eight because he wasn't even really an everyday player he may have been more involved in with, with Gandal in setting up the entire plot um, because McMullen could have little impact on the field there was no way to remove him from the coterie in terms of payment because he had gone some way to setting up the entire plot and then we have the center fielder, Oscar Happy Felsch. Uh, Felsch was a good player, and um, he regretted and apologized 
for having taken part. He, he soon after the series, saw that he had made a mistake and um, that he could not have seen it beforehand, I think really speaks to the climate of the era. Players thought they could get away with tossing an occasional game. And because there was neither television nor radio and scarcely newsreel, very little newsreel footage survives the 1919 series, and, and that has largely been discovered in, over the last decade, people thought, players thought, you could toss a game, get paid off, and no one would be the wiser. So the risk-reward ratio was skewed heavily toward reward. There seemed to be little risk. And I think in examining the players and in examining the Black Sox scandal, it's really important to understand the climate in which this took place. The closing of the racetracks, the gambling money that had to go somewhere, the long tradition of ball players being regarded as in bed with politicians, with actors and gamblers, it was all one set. To think that baseball was somehow pure, yet the world of theater or politics was not, is to create uh, walls that were not in place at the time. Well, we as a society, especially in America, want to regard America's pastime as something pure. Um, the general public doesn't want to see the, 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 the scabs and the scars, but they're there. Well, sure. It's a human institution and thus subject to human frailty. And uh, baseball is sometimes better than the nation whose pastime it is and sometimes worse and occasionally it has led the nation and has been a beacon to it particularly uh, with racial integration in the years after Jackie Robinson but uh, baseball is an industry too and uh, people who are reliant upon the game for profits whether they are players or whether they are owners or whether they are auxiliary service members so it's very hard to be a business and be pure in the last of the players before we go on to uh the trial itself which is fascinating in its own right is you know possibly the man that it's still so associated with and that was you know shoeless joe jackson yeah there are those who over the years have claimed for jackson a christ-like innocence that, that he was a uh, country boy he was illiterate he was uh, ill-bred um, he may have been illiterate and he could he barely sign his name to a document but Jackson was not dumb and Jackson built many profit-making businesses years after his dismissal from baseball so, you know, uh, Weaver applied for a reinstatement on six separate occasions to Landis and to Landis's success, and uh, Jackson never applied for a reinstatement. Never. He accepted the verdict, in part because he had other ways of making money, and perhaps in part because there was no question that he took the $5,000 from the gamblers. 
And those who assert that he went out and played to win because he got 12 hits and he batted 375 can have no knowledge all through to the wrong base hit in when there were no runners on base and and uh, failed to hit in the clutch. These things are not knowable. The one thing that is knowable and that attests to his guilt is that he took the money. And he admitted to taking the money. Now, in grand jury testimony, yes. Now, is it true? Um, there's, you know, there's legend that he tried giving the money back directly to Comiskey. I don't know whether the story is true. I don't know whether it's an Elliot Asinoff uh, concoction. Frankly, I don't care. The verdict is in. He took the money. He did. And so, so, so those who would like to apologize for Jackson have a hard time getting past this particular fact when it comes to arguing with me. Now, as far as Jackson's talent as a player goes, I mean, his career batting average is still among the highest ever. His career certainly was... If He was a tremendous player, no question. If there was another Hall of Famer on that team, it probably would have been Jackson. Um, was he... Unquestion- as- unquestionably, at, at the time... Only Ty Cobb had a higher lifetime batting average. Hornsby, who subsequently uh, finished with a 358 average, had not yet burst upon the scene the way he would in the years after Jackson's uh, banishment. Now, interestingly, two players on that team that were not part of the Black Sox, um, you know, catcher Ray Shawk and second baseman, um, Eddie, Eddie Collins. Collins. Wow, I can't believe I almost lost Eddie Collins' name. Are both Hall of Famers. Do you believe that it's possible that they really had no idea of what was going on? No, I think they probably had an idea. And that, that, that they were pretty upset about it during the World Series. I think it had to have been evident to them. There were certain key plays, principally made by the pitchers, that looked strange to them and Schalk is said to have been furious particularly with Williams for uh, not giving full effort throwing in meatballs Um, Seacott's bungling in the field and hitting the first batsman which was a signal to gamblers that the fix was in um, it would have been very implausible for Collins and Schalk to have been oblivious to what was going on around them. Especially Schalk. I mean, the catcher knows everything that's going on in the field. Yes, but there are days when pitchers just don't have it. That's and, true. Uh, catchers know this. So so the, the question is whether signals were being crossed or whether the, if the guy just had nothing on the ball, uh, there are such days. And I would say that it's that fixing a baseball game is largely a matter of pitcher and catcher. All the other players are dependent upon circumstance to have the uh, the play sent their way that they can bungle in such a way that it scores runs for the opponents. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem as easy to fix a baseball game as it is most other games. And it would certainly be tougher for the viewer to be able to pick it up right 
Yes. So, so the uh, the John Sayles film follows up on Elliot Asimov's assertion that Christy Mathewson, who had been uh, a great Giants pitcher and a manager with the Reds, but uh, before going off to war, uh, was in the press box of the ring larger and started circling those plays that looked suspicious. Was it true? I don't know. No, but There's how so many. How freaky was it that John Sales looked so much like Ring? Yes, yes, that was that, that was uh, a wonderful bit of casting. Um, baseball supplies us with myths and legends, and just as uh, you know, our national heroes do. Uh, George Washington and the cherry tree, and tossing the dollar across the Rappahannock, and Abe Lincoln, the rail splitter. Um, Slim facts to which legend accretes. I just I did an interview earlier today about Jackie Mitchell, who was the 17-year-old girl who struck out Ruth and Gehrig in succession mm-hmm. in a stunt game that was arranged by Joe Engel for the Chattanooga Lookouts. It was supposed to have been played on April 1st, April Fool's Day, but there was a rainout, so they played it. Poor Jackie Mitchell went to her grave thinking that she had indeed struck out Ruth and Gehrig, but the fix was in. (laughs) Gehrig and Ruth were in on it. Now, um, I bring this up because I'm talking about how legend accretes to slim fact. We now have children's books about Jackie Mitchell creating her as the hero of women's baseball, which is hilarious, just hilarious. It's always hard to separate the facts from reality when it comes to legends and heroes. With the exception of Teddy Roosevelt, I believe everything ever written about Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, when I worked in the editing rooms, uh, as I did three days a week for years with Ken Burns and the crew, and some talking head would come on screen and say something that wrinkled my nose because I was not only an editor and a fact checker and a consultant, um, I also had to keep my ears pricked for exaggeration. And when I would point out that something that some talking head had just said was probably not true, invariably the entire crew would yell out in unison, that fact is too good to be checked. <laughs> Print the legend. Mm-hmm. Liberty balance, it's right. Yep. So, now, the, the trial itself, which, as you pointed out earlier, did not even occur until towards the end of the 1920 season. Well, no, the grand jury uh, hearings were in 1920, but the trial was 21 21 yeah but when the when the the grand jury hearings start what caused it to surface and come to there were press accounts there were leaks and uh, the the stories that appeared in the press were um, authenticated in some measure by the players who said yeah that's what i said or uh in some cases the actual testimony survived and um was leaked years afterwards. Alfred Austrian, the attorney for the uh, the players, I believe, was found to have had 
some of the grand jury transcripts. The idea that the transcripts were lost and thus unavailable to the jurors at trial in 1921 is complete nonsense. And that, again, I believe, can be chalked up to Elliot uh, and eight men out. Uh, because while the actual transcripts were misplaced, the stenographic record from which the transcripts could easily be recreated and were recreated survived. So this is a red herring. So we know we had grand jury testimony by both Seacott and Jackson. Yep. Did any other players testify? I believe Felsch did, but I don't think we have his testimony. Okay, and then it goes to trial, and all kinds of names start getting brought up as being part of this scandal. You know, including... Rothstein, Rob, Arnold Rothstein even testified. Yeah, I was going to say, you got Arnold Rothstein, you've got um, Bill Burns being... Um, Bill Burns and Billy Mahog being put in, and of course, uh, as a boxing historian myself, Abe Attell being implicated and being part of this. Yeah, Attell became a professional gambler and a kind of Rothstein bodyguard and henchman in the years after his boxing career ended. Attell, as you know, was a very great boxer. A phenomenal boxer. With a reputation for taking a dive when it suited him. <laughs> he always said he made more money on the fights that he lost than the ones that mm -hmm, he won. Mm -hmm. And Attell lived for a very long time. And I believe that he may have been a uh, maitre d' of sorts at Jack Dempsey's restaurant on Broadway. And that Attell was a principal source for Elliot. That makes a lot of sense, that uh, obviously he was telling his side of the, or, or putting himself into the legend of that side of the story to Elliot. Sure, and, and Chick Gandel uh, wrote a story with Mel Derslag for Sports Illustrated in 1956. Joe Jackson told his story to Furman Bisher for Sport Magazine, I think, in 1947. So there is this myth that the Black Sox went to their graves and never said another word about it, but they were, they were very loquacious on the subject. They were not necessarily truthful, but they talked plenty. <laughs> well, they all got to, you know, they all have to be the central character when they tell the story. Uh, I remember reading the Chick Gandel Sports Illustrated story, and I always felt that that one had the most truth in it because he really kind of implicated himself a lot he didn't try to martyr himself it's just impossible to say I mean, yeah this is such a complicated story it has so many characters so many moving parts so many false renditions it's like a big ball of yarn and and if you pull out a strand on one side or another of the ball the whole thing becomes unraveled. It's all interconnected. And I think that the Sabre guys have done a marvelous job. Um, Bill Lamb, Jacob Pomeranke, uh, Bruce Allardyce, Gene Carney, who's deceased now. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting others. But uh, uh, their work, which is available to Sabre members, or available for, available for purchase on the sabr.org site, is also available on Amazon. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Bill Lamb's book on the uh, ramifications of the uh, 
courtroom activity, both grand jury and trial, is an astounding piece of work. And they actually won the trial. They won the court case. Well, they won in part <laughs> because of their celebrity. It's, you know, it's a jury nullification of the O.J. sort. And, um, and it was Chicago on the merit, in the on, 20s. On, <laughs> on the merit, they should not have been acquitted. No, but like you said, it's Chicago in the 20s. They were celebrities. And, and after, after, after the verdict was rendered, there was a big party. Uh, the jurors and the... Uh, the defendants uh, were in adjoining rooms and eventually started partying together. <laughs> See, again, that's the kind of legend that makes it so intriguing and so fascinating that you just can't picture that actually happening. It, it, well, it couldn't happen today with well again. The media. Again, I drive you again. I drive you back to context. This is post-war. You have a disrespect for institutions. You have a devil-may-care attitude about your life, particularly if you're young. Prohibition is in force, but it's a sham. So respect for the law is diminished by prohibition, not, not improved. And it's in this climate that the average working man, who can now neither <laughs> gamble on a ball game nor have a beer at the ballpark, um, is inclined to go with the defendants. Yeah, they're the heroes. They're not the villains to these people. That's, that's alas, true. So in setting the record straight, which is what we are in a position to do some hundred years later, the players were part of their era, as were the jurors, as were the writers. And this moral anomie, this normlessness that characterized the post-war period and drove the uh, non-stop party that was the 1920s. The Black Sox set the table for that. And they gave one other thing to baseball history that, that really changed the game forever, and that was, at least it's alleged, I mean, you could speak better to this than I can, having a commissioner put into place that would have authority over the game as a result. Uh, the commissioner was brought in to save baseball from itself. There had been a governing body between 1903 and 1919 called the National Commission, which consisted of the American League president, who was a constant, Ben Johnson, throughout the period, the National League president, and that was a revolving door, and a, um, an impartial third party, who was Gary Herman of the Cincinnati Reds. So you had a representative of the Reds and representative of the White Sox on the commission, and you had Ben Johnson, whom everybody hated by this time. And Johnson and Comiskey, who had once been great pals, the governing, the governing story of baseball before Landis is more interesting to look at than the ascension of Landis himself. How was Landis chosen for the position? Well, Landis was a federal judge, and he'd done baseball a big favor. Now, he was regarded as a showboat judge, in other words, uh, outlandish verdicts, which would subsequently be overturned, as in the famous Standard Oil case in which he fined Standard Oil $29 million, which then was an enormous amount. Yeah. Times, times 35, and you get 
uh, what it would be in today's dollars. But well, the verdict was overturned, the award was overturned. Landis's big favorite of baseball was that he was the presiding judge in the Baltimore Federal League uh, suit against the American and National Leagues. And this went on for seven years, and he sat on it. He just would not rule. So um, the case eventually worked its way up to the Supreme Court, and in 1922, Justice Holmes settled the case in favor of Major League Baseball, saying that um, it was immune from certain challenges in the business world because it was not so much a standard corporation as it was a series of temporary entertainments, that it was localized rather than national and was immune from antitrust legislation. This killed the Baltimore Federal League case, but what enabled that case to go all the way to the Supreme Court in 22 was Landis's sitting on it for all those years. Major League Baseball, which was not a term in use at that time, it was, it was the National Commission representing the American and National Leagues, knew that Landis had done them a favor, so he was the guy they were looking to. And he was given the position for life. He was, and, and of course he lived on until 1944. So uh, there are those who say that baseball might have had racial integration for some time before Landis's death, but it, it's a that is a historical simplification. Uh, just as people like to think that Cap Anson single-handedly created the color line in baseball in 1887, they like to think that single-handedly Landis kept African-Americans out of Major League Baseball until Jackie Robinson came along. Um, these, these are not factual. These are tales for children. No, and I'm from Buffalo, New York, where we actually had... Um a federal league club. A federal league club and an African-American player before the color line was drawn. So, Yeah, Frank Grant, of course, was a, was a terrific uh, second baseman with Buffalo in what was then, like, I think, the Eastern League. I think mm-hmm. it's not yet called the International League, and this would be in 1886-1887. And Grant went on to play in the minors for some years thereafter and then with all black teams. And uh, it was only in recent years that uh, his skill was recognized sufficiently to gain him a plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame. A well-deserved plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame. What's amazing is how the, the, the 19 series and the Black Sox scandal in and of itself has become more folklore than fact. And that's why I'm so glad people like yourself are around that bring the true history and can discuss it even though it might not be pleasant for some people to hear you know people want buck weaver to be a hero but Mm -hmm. as as a historian i am so thankful for you to be able to you know tell the truth and show history as it is well uh i uh have great respect for myth and its power and how it can overtake fact virtually in the very minute after it occurred uh, we need stories, and uh, from Abner Doubleday to um, Judge Landis and Buck Weaver, um, the stories are always in some substantial measure false, but they have a binding power that make us love the game. And 
it's for those of us who do love the game it's a love that it, it's very tough to break i mean they've tried to push us all the way several times and we keep coming back because of the love of the game yes uh, in part it's generational it's the game you grew up with and in some cases it's the game uh, that your father or grandfather introduced you to or grandmother or mother and um their times and was a friend of mine used to say the best part of baseball today is it's yesterday's and I think that's probably true for a pe- for people of a certain age who can recall the heroes of yore and place them in the context of the game of today. Um, baseball is a, a, an unparalleled pleasure. It's been my whole life. I mean, like you said, my grandfather had me watching baseball when I wasn't even old enough to walk. So it's just it, it's part of me. And I, and I think that's that's true for me too. My story is a little more peculiar. I didn't I didn't pick up the game from my ancestors, but uh, certainly it is one thing that I have loved without question since the age of five, and um, loved continuously. Hard to say that for someone who is nearing seventy five that you can love one thing for all that time and never have doubts about whether you love it or not. That's pretty great. Wonderful talking with you, Brian. Wonderful talking with you, and it's wonderful that baseball was smart enough to bring you as the official historian and the Hall of Fame bring you as the official historian, someone who actually loves and cares about the sport the way you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. So long. Thanks. That was Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Hall of Fame historian John Thorne discussing the 1919 Black Sox World Series. Lauren will be again joining me on our next episode, which we probably will be recording tomorrow. Hopefully have it up for you in just a couple days. So everybody, once again, please stay safe, stay happy, and on behalf of Lauren and myself, good night. (laughs) 